Well, now we turn in a time in our service to the preaching of God's Word, and we are going to be in the letter of Philippians, and we'll be in chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Before I begin with our reading and preaching, let me ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us through your holy word. Lord, we are people who are weak, and I am a man who is weak myself. But your Holy Spirit is strong, and your Holy Spirit can make us to understand what is true and right and the way that we should go. Father, we pray that Jesus Christ would be present through the preaching of your word this morning, that he would comfort us and strengthen us, convict us where we need to have our hearts convicted. And Lord, may you bless us through your word this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our text this morning from Philippians chapter 2, hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The sends the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it to us this morning. Today my question to you is, what fills you with joy? If I were to ask you, what is it that fills you with joy? What would you say? Maybe Thanksgiving is what fills you with joy. Many of us are coming off of a wonderful time of being with family or friends and eating a lot of food, sitting around with family, arguing about politics and overeating, a great American pastime. Maybe that is what fills you with joy. Is that what is something that you look forward to and anticipate with your life? Is the holidays, Thanksgiving and then soon Christmas, is this something that you are filled with joy? Or maybe What fills you with joy is not actually Thanksgiving, but it's the day after Thanksgiving when you go and buy all your Christmas gear, your Christmas tree, and set up all the lights around your house, and you finally turn on the music that celebrates the Christmas season. But let's be honest, we know that half of you have already been listening to Christmas music for the last month, so this is nothing new, but at least you can feel good about yourself that nobody's going to criticize you now for playing Christmas music. But what is it for you that fills your heart with joy? And what for you is the center thing that you would point to? Well, for the Apostle Paul, here in this text this morning, he points to something that would fill his heart with joy. And that is the unity of the church in Philippi. That these believers would be unified together in their beliefs and in their hearts and in their love. But the question for us, too, this morning is also, how do we pursue this unity? If this is what is going to bring joy to the Apostle Paul, and what should bring joy to us, how do we pursue this? Unity is a thing that is hard to 
actually find oftentimes, that we're more prone to divisions, to strife, to fighting. We see this in the church, and we see this outside of the church. We find this in our own families. We find this in our friendships, amongst our co-workers. But in the church is the place that is one thing that is supposed to be defining us is our unity together about what we believe and about what we love. So how do we pursue this? Well, I'd like to look at this text in three ways this morning. I'd like to look at the motivation for unity, which will be our first point, the motivation for unity. Secondly, the call to unity. And lastly, the attitude of unity. So our motivation, the call, and the attitude for unity. First off, Paul begins with the motivation for unity. And he lays out four different things for us to motivate us to pursue unity. But he sets this out by saying, if these are true, if there is any encouragement, if there's any participation, if there's any affection, any sympathy, but there's no doubt in Paul's mind whether or not these are true. This is a rhetorical question. These are things that you are supposed to know are in fact already true. These are things that are true before we ever begin to pursue unity in the church. And these are things that you and I must know in our hearts that are true about us and for us and towards us before we ever begin to think about pursuing unity together in the church. And the first thing that he points out is if there is any encouragement in Christ. We must remember that in this church there is many sources of discouragement for them. In the church in Philippi, we have seen over the past few weeks that they have seen their beloved Apostle Paul thrown in prison. They've seen that their faith is under attack. There are people who want to undermine their faith in Christ. They are experiencing divisions within their own church. Two beloved sisters in Christ, Paul will later tell them to agree in the Lord. These are likely women who are pillars in their church, and they're witnessing divisions outside, and now divisions inside in the church. And this seems like this congregation is ready to begin fracturing apart. And so they're on the precipice of great discouragement. And these can become sources of discouragement for us when there's fighting in our church. We fight with one another. And instead of the gospel being what unites us and brings us together, we look and see that there is growing persecution and opposition to the gospel. Instead of seeing fruitfulness of our ministry, people coming to Christ, we actually see opposition to our ministry. Not only that, instead of people growing interested in true doctrine, there is fighting over what is right and true. People questioning our true beliefs. These can often be sources of discouragement for us as believers. And so we need motivation. We need to know what is true and right about us. That there is encouragement in Christ for us. What is the encouragement that we have in Christ? Well, this phrase that Paul uses, in Christ, is something that he refers to often throughout all his letters. It is that ultimately, you and I are in Christ. 
And this is a source of encouragement to us. It is what Jesus Christ has told you when he ascended into heaven. He said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That first and foremost, we must remember that Jesus Christ is with us. No matter what happens around us in this life. A world that turns against us. A ministry that doesn't seem to bear fruit that we hope that it does. Divisions that might occur in our own Christian family. But what Paul wants us to understand is, you must remember that Jesus Christ is with you. He is in you. And there is great source of encouragement in that. But then he says his second motivation. Comfort from love. Or this is another way you can translate this word is consolation. And that is comfort in the presence of love. There's two kinds of comfort. There's the comfort of sitting by a warm fire with a nice comfortable blanket. And that is a great comfort. We all enjoy those kinds of things. But there may not be anything wrong. It's just simply this is something we enjoy. But this is comfort from love, love that comes in at a time when we have experienced loss, when the love of others may have grown cold around us, or we might find ample reason in ourselves for why people should not love us. When we sin and we reflect on ourselves and we think, nobody would want to be around me if they knew about my life. But we have this comfort. That Jesus Christ loves us. He is not only with us, but that He loves us. He does not turn us away because of our sin, but He has instead come to us for the purpose of cleansing us of our sin. And that is our comfort. He will never leave us. He will always be present with us. And He will always love us, no matter what happens to us. No matter what we do, we belong to Him. But the third source of motivation that Paul lays out here is the fellowship of the Spirit. The first two have to relate to Christ, and now he turns to other sources of motivation that come from the Holy Spirit. There's many ways we can understand what this fellowship, this koinonia, as people often use that phrase or word, what this could mean. But I believe what this phrase means is that's the fellowship that is produced by the Holy Spirit. That you and I together in the church have a fellowship that exists even if we don't feel it. That we're united to one another. That the Holy Spirit is the bond that has brought us together in the church. This is not just something that is out there that we think about. This is a reality that is true about us as Christians. And the Holy Spirit is the bond that brings us together. And so often we feel like, are we actually united? And Paul is saying, yes, you have a fellowship in the Holy Spirit together as Christians. You fellowship together in the same blessings that God has given you. That you share in the same inheritance. We will all go to heaven to be with Jesus Christ one day. 
We share that blessing together. We share in one body. We are all together one temple of the Holy Spirit. This is true about us, whether we feel it or not, as Christians. But then there is a fourth thing that Paul wants to motivate us with. It is affection or sympathy. God knows our frame. He knows that we're weak. He knows about us. He knows that we easily wilt and fall apart when the trials and tribulations come upon us in life. And that we are known entirely and completely by Him. This is what we just sang about a moment ago. This text from Psalm 139 that God knows everything about us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows the darkness. He knows the light. No matter where we go from His Spirit, He knows us. But it's not just that God knows us. It's that He has compassion on us. It's one thing to feel yourself weak and feel all alone. That nobody cares and looks out for you. But our motivation here is that God knows our weakness. He knows our frame. And He has compassion for us. He cares about you. He looks after you. That he has come to support, strengthen, and sustain you. And these are the four things that Paul lays out that are motivation for us to pursue unity. This is what God is doing in the church, whether we see it or not. This is what is true about us before we ever step foot on the pursuit of the path of unity. That Christ's mercy and love and compassion abound for everyone in the church. And if that is true about us, and that is true about everyone that we interact with in the church, then what does that mean for us of how we should pursue unity? What does it mean then if we all share together in the blessings, what does that mean for us? Well, it means we ought to pursue this unity together because we share in all these wonderful things together. And this is why Paul issues now his call to unity, our second point this morning. And he begins by telling them, make my joy complete. As we saw the last two weeks, Paul's greatest joy is to see Jesus Christ glorified. And he wants to see the Philippians live a life worthy of the gospel, that Christ himself would be glorified in their lives too. So we're here, we're challenged by Paul. That he's basically saying, fill up my joy. Fill me with joy. Don't leave me half hanging. You've sent this gift of money to help my ministry You sent your beloved brother to me who got sick along the way and I've sent him back to you. But the thing that Paul would fear is that this church who participates in his ministry would then just end up fighting with each other. Divided against each other. And that would be a stalled joy. An incomplete joy. 
And so Paul wants to see these believers working together. And is that a desire of your heart? Is that what you want for the church? Do you want to see us working together and united together? Because that is one of the ways that Jesus Christ is glorified. Is when the church is working together as it ought to. When we are a united body, loving one another, caring for one another. But now Paul issues this call to unity. How do we make joy complete? How do we fill up this joy? Well, in two different ways. He says it is in a unity of belief and a unity of love. Unity of belief. Simply put, we share the same beliefs. This is what he's calling them to. Complete my joy being of the same mind. And then at the end, he says, of being of full accord and of one mind. See, a church that is united in its beliefs is a strong church. Our modern age actually thinks of this kind of unity of belief as a sign of weakness because it makes people feel on the outside. That's not very unifying of you. If you have a system of doctrine that you are all united in what you believe. The modern view of unity is it doesn't matter what you believe, and that is why we're united together. And that is not at all what Paul is commending to us here. He's not saying be united for the sake of being united. It doesn't matter what you believe. He's saying, no, I want you to have one mind, to be united in what you believe together. But it's not even just being united in what you believe, it's being united in what's true. Paul is not seeking a wishy-washy, we're just all in this together feeling that we have. Paul wants Christians united around the truth because when you're united around the wrong thing, it's destructive. One can think about what's happening around the world with Christians being persecuted. There are governments that are united together to persecute Christians. They're intent on destroying them. So unity itself is not always a good thing. It is being united around a core set of beliefs. And this is why in the OPC we have doctrinal standards. We have defined for us and set out for us what we unite around. We have what are known as the Westminster Confession and the catechisms that support it. And this is our union of belief. And this is what makes us strong together, is when we hold these things in common. We say, yes, there is much that we have in common. We don't need to fight about these things. Now, like good Presbyterians, we're still going to fight about those things. But we have, at the end of the day, something that holds us together. It's not, well, you have your beliefs, I have my beliefs, and we just go our separate ways, and, or we come together, and we're just, that's the way we do it. These spell out what we're united around. But Paul doesn't just hope for a unity of belief. He hopes for a unity of love. And again, this is not just that you would have love. This isn't just be a loving person. 
You don't need Jesus to hear that. The world will fill you with messages to be a loving person. And that's a good thing to be told, to love one another. But here what he's telling us is to love the same things. It's what we are called to love together as the church of Christ. We are to love Jesus Christ above all things. We are to love one another in the body of Christ. We are to love seeing people come to faith in Christ. And we are to love watching other believers grow in their faith and obedience to Christ. These are what we are to love together. And this calls for a unity of spirit. The core of what we want and desire must be centered on the same things. Not only belief about what is true, but about what unites us together. But so often, something gets in the way of this, doesn't it? Don't we all know this? That the call to love, the call to be united, the call to be united in our beliefs, the call to be united in our loves, gets thwarted by ourselves. The greatest obstacle to unity is us. It's our own sin. And so Paul spells out for us how we do this. How do we practice unity? This is our third point this morning. If we want to be united, how do we do it? Well, in one word, Paul tells us, humility. And he gives us in two different ways what humility looks like. First, what we don't do. And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. And this is a word that speaks about division in the church. We are not axe grinders you know that term. We are not people who have a theological axe to grind, and we need to bring everybody on board with our singular issue that we think is most important for everybody to agree with. Now, there are important issues that we need to agree upon, but the attitude is here is not an ambitious idea of ourself that what we think and believe is what's most important for everybody else to think and believe. But secondly, we don't do anything from conceit. Literally, this word is empty glory, or we get the the old word vain glory. And this is self-exaltation. What stands in the way is our self-ambition and our self-glory. This desire to want to be seen by others. We want others to know how intelligent we are how smart, how perceptive we are. We want to know other people to know how good we are at serving. We want to know other people to see us. And Paul is showing us that pursuing these things are destructive to unity. They will undo it in a moment's notice. So what do we actually do? What do we actually do? What is Paul telling us to do here? Well, he says to consider others as more important than yourselves. John Calvin says about this, considering others as more important than yourselves, he says, 
If anything in our whole life is difficult, this above everything else is so. This is the most difficult thing in human life. To consider somebody else as more important than yourself. There is nothing in our hearts that we will fight harder against than to consider somebody else as more important than ourselves. Because our hearts are bent inward on ourselves. We want to be important. We want other people to notice us. We want other people to appreciate us. And we want nothing less than to be shunned, to be put aside, to be ignored, to be thought less than. And this is why it's so often that the Lord must be the one that humbles us. Because we won't do it ourselves. We're afraid of it. We don't like it. We don't like putting others before ourselves. We want to be comfortable. We want to be liked. We want to be the ones put on a pedestal. But Paul says, no, there's two things that you need to do. The first is to think of others as more significant than yourselves. And that is one of the most simple things that could ever be spelled out. Simply thinking about someone as more important than yourself. See here, we think that the issues that other people care about are not that important. They're at least not nearly as important as the things that we care about. We think that we know the right way to do things. We know the right course of action. And if only people adopted our way of doing it, then everything would go well. And so what do we do? We steamroll over other people, don't we? Well, just get out of my way, go along in the train behind me, and everything will go well for you. And we do this because we don't think about other people Not only as important, but as more important than us. So you cannot care for someone until they are important to you. And you will only begin to care for someone once you believe that they are actually more important than you. That is where this begins. But he spells this out in even more detail for us. The second thing is that we look also to their interests. Paul is not ignoring that there are things that we must take care of in this life. We have to work jobs. We have to support families. We have responsibilities and things that we need to look out for. But Paul is saying also, look out. Have an eye that looks out for the interests of others. Treat them in a real and genuine way that says that they're important to you. Now, this may not actually mean that the things they care about are important. And this is one of the things that's difficult, right? Sometimes the things that people care about are not important. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. The question is not whether or not the things that somebody cares about are important. The question is, what do you think about that person? Because what we do is if somebody cares about something that we don't think is important, parents with children, we look at our children and we think, that's not important. 
You wanting to go play outside with bugs? That's not important to me. And maybe it's not important, but it's important to the child. And what Paul is saying is, you need to find that person important. Because then you will actually be willing to listen. You will actually be willing to hear them. You will be willing because that person is important to you. And they will know that you care about them. And you can work from there. But that will not happen until you care about them. Until you take a genuine concern and for the others around you. And this is for Paul how we build unity in the church. Is we put others before ourselves. It's very simple. Yet it is the most difficult thing in this world to do. And in the coming weeks we will look at what Paul points to as the ultimate proof of this. That this is what Jesus Christ himself has done for us. That Jesus Christ has made us important to him. Now, are the things we care about important compared to what Jesus Christ thinks about? Of course not. Yet Jesus Christ has considered you important. So important that he left heaven to come down to save you. Whose life was filled with pursuing worthless things. He said, no, you are more important than me staying in glory. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for you. That he took an interest in you. He knows you. He came down. He heard you. And he brings you to be with himself. So brothers and sisters, this morning, what is it that brings you joy? Is it the things of this life, as good as they are, Or is it that we're united together in pursuing the same things? That we are united together in putting each other first instead of putting ourselves first. And as we will see next week in the weeks following, it is Jesus Christ who has put you first. So remember your Savior and what He has done for you. That you are important to Him. And let that fill your life and flow out with considering others important as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that shows us the way in which we ought to go. Lord, we confess that we do not do this as often or as frequent as we ought. And we need your Holy Spirit to help us to see others as important, as more important than ourselves. Lord, work in our hearts. Help us to see this. Help us to see that we have been considered as important to Jesus Christ and that he loves us and that he cares for us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.